What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Many of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, which is my effort to find the most interesting people in the world and sit with them for hours while I ask questions in an effort to learn. So it would mean the world to me if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite audio platform, watch episodes on YouTube, and tell your friends and family about the podcast. My goal is to help millions learn from the world's most interesting people. So let's get into today's episode. Oliver Rust is the head of product at Trueflation. In this conversation, we talk about why CPI and the Bureau of Labor Statistics methodology for calculating inflation is incorrect or inaccurate, what exactly Trueflation is doing with a new data collection and methodology, how the Fed would respond if they had a different data set, why Trueflation believes that inflation will be stickier than everyone else believes in 2024, how good data could lead to better decision-making, and also then we talk about the product. Who's using it? How exactly are they doing it? And what is success look like for somebody like Trueflation who wants to build a much better inflation measurement? I really enjoyed this conversation with Oliver, and I think that you all will learn a ton from it. So I'm excited for you all to listen to my episode with Oliver Rust. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is brought to you by Aradine. They're a brand new startup led by a number of Silicon Valley legends who just raised $81 million to build the future of internet infrastructure. You're probably wondering what that means. Let me explain. There are numerous new disruptive technologies that are being adopted simultaneously from blockchain to artificial intelligence to zero knowledge technologies. In order to ensure that these technologies thrive in this new world, we need new infrastructure, and that is where Aradine comes in. They just launched their first product line called Terraflux, which is a Bitcoin miner powered by the world's first four nanometer silicon chip technology. These air-cooled, single-phase and dual-phase immersion cooling miners have unrivaled speed and efficiency. They have superior uptime, and they leverage a brand new innovation called Energy Tune that allows miners to dynamically adjust the energy consumption and Bitcoin hash rate based on demand response needs of the electrical grids. Aradine is an ambitious company working on hard problems. I'm really impressed with them. And if you want to check out more, you can go to Aradine.com. That's A-U-R-A-D-I-N-E.com. Go check them out at Aradine.com today. This episode is brought to you by Cal.com. What do I have in common with Chad Hurley from YouTube, Toby from Shopify, and Alexis from 776 and the co-founder of Reddit? We all use Cal.com instead of Calendly, and we are all early investors as well. Cal.com is leading the charge of scheduling platforms in the open source sphere, offering you the chance to harness the efficiency previously reserved for elite corporations and tech gurus. If you like to have your calendar organized and be able to have an efficient exchange when scheduling, but you love all of the benefits of open source technology, then Cal.com is for you. They are transforming sophisticated calendar management into an accessible tool for all via a user-friendly interface. You can customize it and you can make your calendar work for you. Use code POMP for $500 off when you set up your team with cal.com today. Again, go to cal.com, C-A-L.com and use code POMP to get $500 off when you sign up. Cal.com, an open source tool that allows you to take back control of your calendar, be efficient when scheduling, and make sure that no one can steal your time. 
All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Oliver here with me. Uh, I thought a great place to start is Trueflation wants to build a better measurement of inflation. That is probably the, the high level uh, kind of mission. But first, we got to talk about the old method. Uh, it is pretty well understood across Wall Street, across macroeconomy, uh, across market participants. The inflation metric is the best we got. CPI, uh, a lot of questions, a lot of controversies, a lot of debate. How do you all think about what is good about CPI and, and the data collection and methodology? And then where are the areas where maybe they're lacking or could be improved? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I, let me go through it. The BLS, uh, which is the official Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is the government measurement tool of inflation, um, is measured by doing roughly, I think it's 80,000 interviews on a monthly basis where they go and either do store checks to check prices or they have a survey that goes out. But eventually they ask households, what are the price points of these particular items? Um, and I think the great thing is it's been going on for so long um, that it gives you a very nice longitudinal trend. The, the, the downside with for that history of having all that time series analysis that you can do with that data set is that, of course, that you're bound by the lack, the the, the constraints of innovation of this type of a, of a data set. Um, and so when Trueflation started approaching it was, like we got to find a way how to update and modernize this this capability, um, and of course, you know, if you think back to the BLS when it first started, it was pre First World War. It's more than a hundred years old, and if you think about it, what's the real evolution that's been there? Not that dramatic. And since then, you know, we've also you know not only had the consumer boom of the seventies and eighties, we've had the whole internet bubble of online shopping, e-commerce. And all that's changed how to measure inflation as what it was done historically. And I think that's that has allowed us to modernize it in our own way, what we believe is the right way to go forward to measuring inflation as comprehensively as one possibly can. Now, let's talk about how you guys actually are doing it differently. There's like data collection, and then there's the methodology or the calculation. Maybe start first with data collection. What are you using different data points or you have some other methodology? Do you have just way more people going into the stores? How does it work? <laughs> yeah, we don't actually send people at the stores. Uh, we collect data from about 40 different data sources. Um, and they all those data sources aggregate up to about 18 million price points of goods and services on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, so we aggregate all that data set into 12 product categories, so ranging from things like food and beverages, all the way through to housing, transportation, recreation and culture, education, health, and so forth. And we measure each of those indexes on a daily basis. And I think that the, the, the key fundamental difference for us has always been not only the volume of data that we're dealing with, but I think most important, more importantly is the frequency, which allows for a much more uh, analytical capability by having many more trend points along the way. Yes, by having daily, you get a lot more uh, noise and variability, but it gives you a considerably greater uh, trendability and forecastability applications rather than having one dot per month. Now, when you start looking at the calculation and methodology, if you're getting, let's say, more robust data, better data, uh, you could still screw up the methodology. You could be just as wrong as anyone else or um, or not. Like, how, how do you think about the, the calculation being uh, maybe more accurate or more advanced? 
Yeah, I think the calculation is more comprehensive as a result of having the volume of data that we have, the robustness, as you mentioned. Um, and I think that's for a number of reasons is that we don't need to put in separate calculations in there for, for people downgrading or upgrading or um, new materials coming into clothing. Therefore, the price point changes. We don't need to reflect those. And some, some, uh, the BLS and others, uh, use things like the Fisher Index to look at cost of living adjustments. You also have the Passion Index, which looks at this down trading, up trading, um, and all these different types of of, it, of calculations that are sitting on top of the index means that you're adding, in our view, you're adding a uh, a potential error on top of a data set on top of a, a calculation that's sitting on top of another calculation, on top of another calculation, but at the root core of, cause of everything is this 80,000 sample interview that they do to collect price and price points of goods and services. And I think that's the fundamental thing is the volume of data allows us to remove these additional calculations that other organizations have because we're measuring not only prices, but we're also seeing volumetric data set coming in, which gives us this consumer understanding whether downgrading, upgrading without having to create an additional calculation for that. Now, as we look at a better calculation with more robust data, one of the questions becomes, would the Federal Reserve or other people in the economy actually make better decisions? Like if we had a different but better measurement, how much would it change decision making? What, what are the things that would be different if this became the standard uh, kind of measurement that everyone looked at? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're trying to, Truflation is trying to measure um, inflation in the most comprehensive manner possible. Right. And our goal is to, is to, is to achieve that. Um, and I think it, we're a long way off from there. There's a lot more that we can do, but I think we, given the volume of data sets that we're dealing with, the frequency of data sets that we've got, I think it, it does alternatively change market outlook. So if we look, you know, where our predictability as a result of our data has been of the BLS, for example, where we try and match our data to the BLS and predict what their numbers are. You know, we've got a really comprehensive, uh, you know, forecasting capabilities. You know, we're on an average month, we're for the last year and a half, I think that we've been doing this. We've only got a variability of 0.14%, right? And that's better than where Bloomberg is. It's better than the average of 40 different economists that we track. So, you know, th that gives us better forecastability. I think that's one aspect of it. Um, do we see our data being a replacement of the BLS by organizations? Look, that's up to each of our clients and our organizations to predict. I think what we, we tend to position ourselves as an alternative data set, at least in the interim, so that they can start using our data, seeing the value of it. And then in due course, um, people might choose to replace the data sets altogether. But I think in the initial term, we see it very much as an alternative data set, which gives you another triangulation of what the likely trends are in the marketplace. Talk to me about who are the types of people using this? Are these macro fund, you know, kind of uh, hedge fund traders? <laughs> are these uh, economists? Who's actually consuming the data and what are they doing with it? Yeah, so you got uh, it ranges quite quite broadly and uh, much broader than we initially thought when we launched the capability. Um, so at one end, you got macro uh, uh, people that are very interested in just looking at what our forecast is for the next three months, six months. What are some of the structural foundations that we're looking in within the inflationary numbers that could point to a different trend in the for in the long term? Um, then you get the quant guys um, who are looking at to adjust their their trading strategies and how they adjust 
their investment pro- investment decisions. And then you've got people who are producing, even in the DeFi world, who are producing products uh, off our data uh, for you know real world assets, for example. Uh, people are creating inflationary protected stable coins or flat coins. You're getting people looking at trying to use our data to um, you know tokenize oil data, then put added inflationary protection oil data on top of that. So all these variabilities of data sets that we actually partially knew but partially didn't uh, sort of expect the volume of growth that to come on has been phenomenal so those are broadly aspecting uh are the various types of users in our data sets now one of the things that's interesting is if you spend all day trying to figure out how to build a great product that can collect data can calculate and, and use the methodology to have this alternative data set you eventually have to have a personal opinion in terms of what's going to happen with uh, inflation, right? Like you can't just throw the data along. Like I have no clue. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, I get uh, maybe it's daily or weekly email from you guys and it's different kind of thought processes of, Hey, this is something to pay attention to. This is something we're seeing in the data. This is something that we think is going to happen. One of those emails recently talked about sticky inflation in 2024. Uh, that is somewhat against the narrative. There's many people who think the Fed is winning the fight and inflation is going to wave the white flag. It's over. The Fed's going to win and let's move on with our life. Are they wrong? Why do you guys think that inflation is going to continue to be sticky? <laughs> Yeah, so we have we certainly believe inflation is going to be a lot more stickier than people expect. Um, I think the short term you know, outlook for the remaining part of this year, coming into the Q1 next year, um, you know, we sort of see a bit of a uh, a rise again in the back in maybe December in January um, in inflation numbers, not a massive uh, jump where we are, but it's sort of an upward trajectory, and then it'll slowly come down again. I think there are. You know, I think there are three longer term longer term outlooks that I think we need to understand before we can really deal with inflation. And those are the structural elements. And one of them is, you know, the government's investing a lot of money to onshore capability. Look at the semiconductor uh, elements, investments the government's doing. You're looking at the green energy investments the government are doing. All that is bringing capabilities back onshore and using fantastically using US labor, and but that's all going to increase costs from where they are produced today, right? And so that cost structure is going to be passed on to the consumer at some point or, or at some point. That's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is this removal of the middle class, right? You look at the variability of the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the middle class, the middle class has been eroding. And the bulk of that middle class has actually been um, been either well, the bulk of them has been dropping down into a, a sort of a lower income base. But there are individuals that are going up in the higher income, and the higher income are just spending, and that's fueling again more growth and more uh, more spending power, and therefore more pricing power that's coming into the market. I think the third thing why we think that inflation is going to be a lot more sticky is there's going to be less less innovation in the marketplace because the cost of capital is high and that cost of capital then is then you know where are you going to get productivity gains how much is ai going to impact that if the capital injection money flowing into organizations is going to is going to benefit through there and i think finally within that you know i i don't I don't believe I, I'm not a I'm an avid promoter and believer of AI, but I don't believe the impact of AI is going to be instantaneously. And I think that's going to be a much longer outlook, about three, maybe four years before 
corporations start to really see the long-term gains and productivity gains from AI. So I think those are some of the structural elements that need to be addressed. I think in the short term, where we feel that things will be a lot more stickier, I think is going to be in the service-based economies, uh, service-based goods, uh, sorry, service-based prices. With the unemployment market, you look at the jobless claims, most recently been holding relatively stable. The, the continued uh, jobless claims have been rising up a bit the last couple of weeks. Um, it's coming down again recently. I think you're holding, it'll be interesting what the unemployment number comes out with, but that's been relatively stable. It's softening a bit, but not too much. So, and wage inflations are still quite, quite high. So, although it's coming down, it's still quite strong. So I think that whole service bucket is going to be a key focus for the Fed to look into, to see what decision base they come out with. Um, I think that on the flip side, you've also got the housing market, right? And housing is one of the biggest contributors to household income, household expenditure. And I think the housing market in the US is restricted by significant supply, right? I think volumes, the sales of housing has dropped. That's clear. No one's disputing that. I think that's caused by, you know, the increased mortgage rates, uh, the interest rates as, as a result of that. I think, you know, there's also the fact the lack of movement of labor and talent across the country we've seen previously. Um, and I think all this work from home and this new working environment is causing less movement of labor as well. And I think somewhere that lack of supply and the lack of restriction of housing is going to keep those prices relatively strong in the short term. And in the longer term, that will slowly start to come down and reverse the trends. But at least in the interim, that I, we don't see a viewpoint or of our opinion that that's going to come down in the near in the near future. As we see AI continue to permeate throughout the society, economy, et cetera, how much of AI is just like a reinforcement of the deflationary effects and that actually gives more runway to the Fed and others for loose monetary policy and, and kind of like, hey, our big worry should be deflation, not high inflation, uh, because AI is going to be this dominant thing. Yeah, I think, you know, look, I, I, I'm of the, I mean, we use AI like crazy in our in our organization and, and we love it, right? Um but as I said, I, I think that the timing of when AI is really adopted at a mass scale that produces the productivity gains that everyone is expecting, I, I don't see that in the immediate horizon. I think it's much more in the longer term. And so therefore, the Fed is probably, in our view, probably looking at that more as a longer term outlook and like coming back to that structural element changes that's coming on, on board. I think... I think in the in the more shorter term, the Fed's going to be focused on things like core inflation, going to be focused on services, and they're going to be focused on you know gas prices, right? If, if OPEC can can proceed with their desires of Saudi Arabia and Russia looking trying to restrict uh, OPEC production, and what's going on in in Israel versus Hamas and the war there, I think there is a lot of a lot of opportunity or a, a lot of concern for the Fed to maintain their price, their interest rates at a, at a higher level for longer, because if if oil prices go up, that affects so many product categories that we that we use on a daily basis, whether it's, you know, 50% of the oil prices at the pump at this or oil prices follow through right down to the pump, but then it affects all the whole raft of other product categories and services, right? So I think it's, the shorter term outlook is where the Fed will be uh, concerned about for the next three to six months and their outlook horizon there. 
I think the services element is going to be a critical factor for them. And see if that starts to soften, I think they'll start to see uh, a bit of a, a, maybe a loosening of their viewpoints of, of, of interest rates. And maybe that start coming down a bit earlier than expected. I think the other thing to think in effect is the, the rate of the rate of increase of interest rates has been so fast. Um, and it's so rapid. The question now is also being, how does the Fed cut its interest rate and what volume does it cut its interest rate is it going to vo- is it going to be significant chunks at a time or is it going to be gradual i'm of the belief that it will be significant chunks uh, rather than smaller 25% basis points uh, drops i think it's going to be sig- more more likely 75 um 50 75 if not even 100 basis point drops why do you think that what why do you think it's going to be so aggressive I, I just think if you start looking at economic data and if you start looking at the level of which they've accelerated to, and if there is a softening in the economic data sets that's coming through in Q1, early, late Q1, um, you know, no one's expecting, I mean, the, the GDP forecast in quarter three was at 4.9%. Uh, you know, you like that. It's obviously anomaly in the grand scheme of things. You're, everyone's expecting the Q, Q4 number to come down again. Um, but still, it's still going to be it's going to be a strong number, or at least the forecasts are. And I think somewhere once the the numbers start to soften a bit, and if if the I don't know the prices of goods and services start to see some softening, then I think they'll start to drop it. And because of the level they're at, it's going to come down more dramatic than otherwise. And so that's why I think it's going to be much more of a dramatic chunks of decline rather than um, a gradual twenty five basis drops at a time. Got it. Now, when we start to look at maybe um, other areas of the economy in terms of uh, inflation, one of the things I always remind people is when prices go up, they don't come back down. I don't see any of the restaurants cutting their prices back. I don't see you know uh, a number of these things that that all went up. Um, h- how do you think about uh, trying to incorporate you know that level? It's almost more like cost of living uh, and, and the persistent rise of that over time, uh, more so than it is just a true like year over year inflation number. Yeah, if we go back, I mean, this is the this is the thing that we've been reporting on for quite a while, trueflation, which is to say, if we went back to before the inflationary increase has started occurring, so it's back down to 2020, for example, people have had, you know, 20% of their money has been eroded, right? And a varying income groups, it varies, but more than 20% of your income has been eroded because of inflation. And that number is not going to come down, right? It's it's the rate of increase will slow down. That is clear. Um, but we're not expecting I mean, maybe one or two categories will expect will expect real deflation. But again, it's real deflation versus last year or versus a year ago. It's not real deflation back to you know three, two, three years ago where we've had this massive surge of twenty percent, twenty five percent increases of erosion of people's uh, expe- uh, income and therefore purchasing power. And I think that's that's the real fundamental thing. And I don't see us going back down to those levels in any manner, shape, or form. Now, when we see the consumer, obviously they feel inflation. They complain about things being expensive. But I think if you walk down the street, most people couldn't tell you what the inflation number is itself. How do you see their behaviors actually changing in terms of uh, these high inflation environments? And is there some sort of psychological scarring that occurs where the high inflation that we experienced over the last couple of years will change behavior that even when inflation gets back under control, these people will continue to kind of act the same way as if inflation was still closer to 10%? Yeah, it's, that's actually an interesting question for us because we've been actually doing some 
we're starting to do some quite deep analysis into that right now. We're trying to understand what what are the trigger points of when we'll start to see a real change. And one of the factors we're looking at, of course, is um, is consumer expenditure, consumer purchasing power, consumer spending levels. And if you look at all those variables that are out there for a form of metric of consumer spending, um, they haven't really slowed down. Right. Um, there's post COVID. We saw huge government stimulus packages coming in to, uh, bulk up people's expenditure patterns. They spent more. Um, the savings rate went up. They couldn't go out. Then they had revenge spending and that all came back. And now where people are came out of the summer and huge retail sales. Uh, yes, it's markedly come down a bit, uh, this month, but a huge significant retail sales in September. Um, and I think somewhere, you know, the question for us is to say is how are people funding that uh, the expenditure patterns? And we're seeing saving rates being eroded. eroded. We're seeing um, uh, debt levels increasing, whether it's household debt from a mortgage perspective, whether it's credit card debt. Um, you got all these other debt factors that people are dealing with, whether it's auto loans, whether it's student loans and so forth. And they've only been increasing at a household level. And so you're, you're starting to see, okay, well, savings is eroding and household uh, debt levels increasing. I've got higher interest rates to refinance that debt. So, you know, that's the sort of correlation that we've been looking into. And one of the things that we're looking into now is that saying, well, if you look at an average, if there's lack of mobility and people are mo not moving around the country, not buying new homes because of the higher interest rates uh, and people and the owner occupancy rates are, are very high in the US. So therefore, people are most likely not going to be switching out from their 30 year fixed mortgages to get anything else. And their purchasing power is still relatively strong, unlike if you look in other markets, like in Europe, where the variability of that mortgage rate changes every five years. I mean, it's not, so you don't have a 10 to 30 year fixed in, in other markets, very few other markets have that. And so that gives it the US that takes a bit of a longer, longer time for that impact of an erosion of consumer expenditure to change behavior. And we see that most likely to come in probably sometime in the end of Q1, Q2 next year, if, if things hold as they as we expect them to hold. But we'll get more up to date to that once we start finishing our modeling. Talk to me about the product itself in terms of um, how do people interface with you all? How much of this is API versus more like uh, dashboard type stuff? What are you seeing from actual customer usage? Yeah, so we got three. TrueFlation's got three basic platforms. You either go on the dashboard, you look at the at the uh, website, and you can access all the data that's there. You can see that you can also go there and consume as a retail investor. You can go and and and, and purchase the data, or you can get the access data through an API with the forecast ability, with matching into uh, into the BLS data sets. If people want that, we have our 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 economist teams and our analyst teams coming together with clients one on one to to debrief the outlook of the future, why it's happening. Uh, what our forecasts are, what our three months rolling forecasts are, and so forth. So those are the, generally the three platforms. You either got an enterprise solution at one end, or you got the dashboard access on the website on the other end. Now, what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing right now from a pure product standpoint? So not data collection, not uh, kind of the methodology, but what, what are some of the things you're thinking about with user experience or how you'd be able to actually make this much more uh, kind of um, uh, prevalent across Wall Street and elsewhere? 
Yeah, I think for us is one, I think, first of all, the exposure of, of our data set, I think it's fairly well known. Uh, of course, there's more work for us to be doing to accelerate exposure. Um, but I think the other factor for us is how do we drive more defined usability of the data? Right. You know, especially now in a world where we believe inflation is going to be hanging around a lot more, a lot longer than, than the market is expecting. Um, but how do we translate that into additional models, forecasting? And then we start doing now casting with every new data injection that we get. You know, how do we leverage that into, um, models and, and quant aspects for, for end users? Right. And that creates for us, um, you know, a bit more of a stickier relationship and a bit more of a deeper understanding with the community of what they're asking for versus what we can deliver. So it's more trying to go deeper into the data set, more trying to find deeper and supporting the analysis and app applications that our end users are using the data for. Um, and, and I think that combination is where our focus is right now. What's been the most surprising thing to you in terms of uh, doing this? Has it been the receptivity, maybe the resistance from people, uh, maybe some of the product? What's really been surprising? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, look, we, we, I think we were very fortunate around the timing of our launch. Let's be clear about that. We launched uh, nearly two years ago, and that was, the timing was, uh, you know, spot on. Um, and I think that blew up the receptivity of it. You know, the amount of monthly. Uh, monthly users we're getting on the site is incredible, right? And um, and the fact that there are you know Bloomberg chat groups about uh, trueflation data, I think is is amazing. Um, and so I think you know the receptivity blew us uh, blew us quite considerably. I think that on the flip side, where we've been desperately trying to keep up with the high demand, um, is about how do we provide the data in the most usable format uh, to be able to be able for consumers to digest the data as much as they possibly can. And so it's keeping up with the usability of it. It's keeping up with the volume of data. Can we find other data sets? Can we find things that explain the movements of inflation? So what's the housing supply? What's building material costs, for example? Um, all these type of aspects is where we've been focused on. And that's, that's been the flip side of it, is getting the demand to drive that as much as we possibly can with the resources that we've got. Now, what does success look like? In terms of 20 years from now, Trueflation is quote unquote successful. Does it replace BLS? Is it just the best alternative resource? Is there a bunch of financial products that are built off of this? Like, like how do you think about success for the product itself? Yeah, so I think, look, there, there are multiple prongs for success for us. One is um, how do we get more into products, especially in the DeFi world, and but also in the traditional finance world? So how do we get our data in, ingrained in products and developments that's happening around? That's one aspect of it. And I think the tokenization ability uh, certainly plays plays very nicely into our data set. Um, I think the second aspect of it, yes, is that the data becomes... Uh, in due course, not overnight, but I think in due course becomes the gold standard for inflation. Um, that is our aim. That's what we've always been designed to do. Um, and we certainly hope the market will follow us uh, on a journey to achieve that over a period of time. It's, it's going to, we're going to need more credibility. We have to get people to become more familiar with the data and so forth. But yes, that's very much the longer term application. I think that the third thing for us is then also not only trying to get a gold standard and also becoming more ingrained in products, 
But I think also is, you know, driving the, the applications, the, the analytics of the data. How do we, how do we customize this a lot more? How do we become more bespoke and, and apply all the data requirements that everyone wants to do? And that's going to require not only getting the analytical and using AI a lot more than what we already are using them today, but more also data sets. What other data sets can we build into this that is, that's far reaching and then become, you know, potentially a marketplace where people buy and trade and create custom indexes off our data sets by combining, I don't know, oil commodities with inflation data or, you know, wheat production with temperature and rain data in Arkansas versus the price of, of carbs in grocery retailing, for example. So, I, you know, the, the applications, that's sort of where we're looking at where that future becomes success looks like from a three-pronged approach. Makes complete sense to me. Where can we send people to find you on the internet or find out more about Trueflation? Yeah, we're got, you can go to trueflation.com. You'll find the websites there. Contact us is on there if you need anything from us. You can go to our Telegram account or you can go to our Twitter account, both at Trueflation, um, or you can go to our LinkedIn account. Um, but yeah. Any questions, we're welcome. Any ideas, suggestions, love to hear from everybody. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it very much, Oliver. It's been fantastic. I always learn something we talk, and I think people have learned from this conversation as well. So we'll definitely do it again in the future. Thanks a lot for having me, Anthony. It's been a great conversation.